All right, Jesse, last week's quote-unquote newscaster stalker angered me much more than I expected. What's the story this time around? Actor Phil Hartman was beloved by millions for his memorable roles and hilarious impressions. And by the mid-1990s, his star was just continuing to rise until his volatile marriage to his third wife exploded in deadly jealousy and rage. I'm Andy Cassette, And I'm Jesse Prey. And this is Love Murder. Hi, Andy. Hi, Jesse. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about jealousy, tragedy, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on TikTok and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. If you are enjoying this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. Also, if you're interested in supporting the show more directly, you can go over to patreon.com slash lovemurderpod where you can learn all about the different tiers of support. And speaking of Patreon, we are very excited, as we always are, to welcome some new amazing patrons. Welcome to Stephanie N. and Kelly P., Chanel B. and Alicia O., Ella T. and Rosal R., and Amy C. Welcome, guys. We've been having a lot of fun with Patreon lately. We have two bonus episodes out now. Andy did some scary Scandinavian monsters and myths. And I did the incredible true crime story of Susan Kuhnhausen. I never said anything about them being myths, Jesse. <laughs> okay, the incredibly true and real monsters of Scandinavia. <laughs> so definitely join Patreon. We now have 31 bonus episodes. So we are going to get right into today's episode, which kind of... <laughs> emotionally got to me because I remember Phil Hartman from when I was younger and watching news radio. And I recall when this happened, even though I was still pretty young. So this is definitely very love murdery. And I want to thank everyone who requested this one because we did actually get a lot of requests for this. So thank you for sending this one our way. I think we should probably get right to it. Let's do it. You may remember Phil Hartman as Bill Clinton on SNL, Key Rock, the unfrozen caveman lawyer, or any number of his hilarious spot-on impersonations. For some, including my husband Nathaniel, Phil is best known as Arnold Schwarzenegger's nemesis in Jingle All the Way. Yep. Yearly viewing for yeah. us. <laughs> and for me, he'll always be Bill, the real deal, McNeil from News Radio. Phil's characters, including conman Lionel Hutz and actor Troy McClure on The Simpsons, were always slightly smarmy, self-important, and pretty much self-absorbed egomaniacs. But Bill played them with such total devotion and bombastic sincerity that you still sometimes found yourself rooting for him. In real life, however, Phil was far from the characters he played, hardworking, kind, artistic, introspective, and very much a low-maintenance team player in an industry that begets more of the cutthroat, competitive, egomaniac <laughs> types that are clamoring to be the number one star. Who also happen to be high-maintenance, usually. <laughs> yes, absolutely. If Phil had any weakness, it was for beautiful women. 
He wasn't exactly a playboy, and he was always faithful once married. But after whirlwind courtships and blisteringly romantic honeymoon periods, Phil would once again retreat into himself or out on a boat in Emerald Bay near his beloved Catalina Island. There was always this space that Phil kept for himself that no one could penetrate. Not wives one, two, or three, as it would be. When Phil met his dream girl, finally, the right one, all would seem from the outside like a Hollywood fairy tale come true, until the day that Mrs. Wright became very, very wrong. Blowout fights, substance abuse, professional and personal jealousies would eventually leave the two once promising talents dead, with a sea of loved ones and millions of fans wondering how the hell had it all gone so wrong. Yeah, this is definitely a case that is tragic because of all the lives that Phil Hartman especially touched. And I think we can all relate to, there's got to be like, you know, some weird German word for this. The feeling of the loss of someone you've never actually met in real life. Like this like a grief of someone that you saw on your TV screen and you felt comforted by somehow, but there is something that's real and profound about a grief of somebody that you care about. And especially when it's a talent that was still putting a lot of laughter and uplifting or inspirational content into the world. It just feels like something, there's this vacuum, that something's been taken out of the world in a way. And this is definitely a case that embodies that feeling. I also think that you guys, if you have any interest in Phil Hartman's life, you should read my primary source today, which is called You Might Remember Me, The Life and Times of Phil Hartman by Mike Thomas, which is also a very clever title because his character on The Simpsons, Troy McClure, was always saying, you may remember me from like ridiculous things like smoking your way to skinny or like silly movie names and stuff like that. So I think that's why he went with that title. It is a pitch perfect biography and a tribute to an artist. It's also jam packed with famous people's thoughts on Phil, all of his contemporaries, a lot of comedians, a glimpse of the comedy world in the 70s, 80s and 90s, as well as a clear eyed account of the terrible true crime tragedy that brings you all here today for this episode of Love Murder. Phil's story begins in seeking love, and sadly, it ends there as well. So let's get into our super special star-studded episode right now. Philip Hartman was born a wee five-pound baby on September 24th, 1948 in Brantfield, Ontario, Canada, also the hometown of hockey great Wayne Gretzky. Phil was very much a middle child through and through. He was actually the fourth of eight children, born to parents Doris and Rupert. Both money and attention were very scarce with that many kids and the Hartman's modest income. In a bid for love and attention, Phil began to do impressions and funny shticks that endeared him to the neighbors, classmates, and eventually the world. He would say in a later interview, I suppose I didn't get what I wanted out of my family life, so I started seeking love and attention elsewhere. Other people and Phil himself would also later report that he could not help but gorge himself on available food throughout the rest of his life. Like if there was a craft services table on set, he was almost obsessive about it. He had been raised in an atmosphere where food was scarce and also there was competition about who was going to get the last bite of anything. 
So for the rest of his life, he really had to be mindful about eating because he was completely programmed to eat as much as he possibly could at every meal because he didn't know when he was going to have another one. But I think his parents did the very best they could. They were good parents. His dad did occasionally have to threaten corporal punishment to get the kids to do something, but his sisters and brothers also contributed to the book and said it was kind of standard for kids being raised in the 40s and 50s. Like, if you guys don't get back here, you're going to get the belt. And he was usually more talk than actually action. So this wasn't something that was traumatizing to them, it seems. It was more just kind of like, that's life in this time and era. But yeah, his mother was very artistic. She worked several jobs. His father was a salesperson and also drove a delivery truck, I think, at this point in their life when he was in his childhood. One of their younger children, younger than Phil, was a daughter named Sarah Jane who was born with a rare neurogenetic disorder called Angelman syndrome. And their local hospitals were unfamiliar with Sarah Jane's condition because it's pretty rare. And they were unable to assist the Hartman family with care or help, really. And Sarah required around-the-clock full-time care. This She had an underdeveloped ability to swallow as well. So she needed several people to help her get dressed, to go to the bathroom. All of her food had to be, like, pre-processed so that she wouldn't accidentally choke on it. With this extra help that they needed around the house that they didn't really have. So Phil's mother would stay home and care for Sarah Jane. Came a lot of stress and more stress on their limited resources. Phil was three and a half or four-ish, I believe, when Sarah Jane was born. And he definitely internalized a lot of the stress of the family at this point. His brother said, the only thing Phil ever said to me about Sarah Jane was that he thought it was his fault. You don't know what it means when you're little and you're centered in your own universe. And he thought that what was going on with Sarah had something to do with him for some reason. The Hartman clan eventually immigrated to the United States, first to Maine, then to Connecticut, and eventually to the L.A. suburb of Garden Grove in California. Phil really blossomed here. California was definitely the place for him. He taught himself to surf and he fell in love with Disney World. The latter passion inspired him to pursue art. Specifically, he loved cartooning and drawing. In high school, he fit in with all groups. So there's also a 2020 special about the last days of Phil Hartman, which is great. And you guys should check that out as well. I found it on Hulu, actually. And they said that he just got along with everybody. He could seamlessly fit into every group. He was a jock because he was like a big surfer guy. But he also was very much a theater and art geek. He got good grades so he could fit in with the academics. In school drama productions, he blew everyone away with his ability to do Shakespearean monologues dramatically, absolutely pitch perfect. At the same time, he was so funny. Just in general, he could do these impressions that were unbelievable. He talks about it later in life that he approached his craft as far as acting and comedy goes. A lot like he pursued drawing or graphic arts, like with technical skill, that he could almost hear what a throat or nose or something was happening in somebody's mouth and how they were pronouncing something and what all those factors were. And then he could mimic it. Later on, when he's talking about Bill Clinton, he was mimicking his post-nasal drip because of Clinton's allergies. Like he was 
well aware of what was contributing to that type of voice, which is, it's just really interesting. So yeah, he could kind of do everything. I also have a fun fact for you, Andy. Phil went to high school with Charles Manson devotee, Squeaky from Lynette, who, by the way, won the Personality Plus superlative. What's Personality Plus? <laughs> I guess it just means good personality. It's like personality plus you could be in a cult later. <laughs> That's the plus. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Dot, dot, dot. <laughs> She's also notorious for going on to attempt to assassinate President Gerald Ford. So I guess it's good that she didn't get most likely to succeed. But I'm sure. <laughs> I wish I had access to the drums right behind me to do I that know. for you every time because it's amazing. <laughs> wow. What would be, what wow. Would be a, a podcast uh, with, about Phil Hartman? Without a couple jokes thrown in. After graduation, he studied graphic arts at Santa Monica City College and California State University at Northridge. Phil was handsome, charismatic, athletic. He loved contemplating philosophy, the I Ching, spirituality. He was really a man of the times. Like he was like surfing in hot rods in the 1960s, very like beach boys, to kind of more of a hippie artistic life following rock bands and living in Malibu in like this little beach shack in the early 70s. So cool. It does sound like this ideal journey through California in life, like from when he's like a kid and preteen and teen and it's like surfing in Disney World to now the spiritualism of the 1970s and living in Malibu. It's just incredible. Phil said that he initially avoided going out for an acting career because he had watched his older brother, John, who was, I believe, about seven or eight years older than him, try to become an actor straight out of high school. And he was basically like eaten up by the industry. It's just a tough thing to break into. And Phil was a very rational and smart guy. And he thought that acting was just such a hard gig to get into because no matter how good you were, no matter how studied you were, you could have a degree from Juilliard and still not find success as an actor. And that was even like when I initially went to Emerson, I was in an acting program and I switched to writing because it like stressed me out thinking like I could be the best of the best and it still was like a roll of the dice or a luck of marketing or something that if I would ever actually like be able to make a living doing yeah. that. BUCFA was really intense too. They were like every year, it was like 75% of the kids that were in it were gone. Yeah. It just, it was really intense. And Phil was like, you know what? I have other interests. I have other artistic interests that I would like to pursue that are, would put me on probably a safer track. So he kind of tamped down that side of himself a little early on. And instead, he got cooked up with this through his brother because his brother was managing bands. So his same brother that had kind of tried to be an actor and then had ended up like playing in bands and then managing bands. And he was finding a lot of success. I believe he like managed like Sonny and Cher at one point. Cool. Yeah. So he's like, if you want to be a graphic artist, then I have a job for you. And Phil began designing rock album covers. Cool. It was very cool. So he started with a band that his brother was actively involved in. And then he went on to design for bands like America Poco, I think was banned, and also Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Wow. Yeah. So while he was doing this, he was kind of like 
working freelance. He didn't have to spend a lot, even though he was living in a Malibu colony. But it was like apparently like this little it's like way back in like 1969 at this point, 1970. Was it not as expensive as it is now? No, it wasn't because it was like still not that developed, I guess. And so they described it as literally like a shack, kind of like artist crash pad, like rockers and groupies were going through there all the time. So cool. I mean, it makes way more sense for surfers to be based there than... Yeah, like wealthy people who don't actually surf. But yeah, so he was like surfing and living this like life and he didn't really need that much. So he was getting to be artistic and it was great. And then one day he was walking on the beach and he came across this gorgeous 19-year-old neighbor named Gretchen Lewis, and she was walking her dog, and they started talking. They fell into a deep conversation, and they ended up talking on the beach for hours, like literally after the sun went down. And Gretchen later said, I have never met anyone like him in all of my years. You just felt like he was a lie detector. What you saw is what you got, but not in a bad way, just in a genuine way. So it was essentially like it always seemed like he was being completely honest with everyone. The two fell madly and deeply in love. It is very, I think he was a year or two older than her. So these are like two kids that are like 19, 20, 20, 21-ish. And the description of this first very serious love affair for him was so reminiscent of what you feel so deeply when you're in that age range and you're really in love for the first time. And it's like nonstop sex and talking and just just thinking about them all day. All the time, and you're just like mind and body are on fire with love. That's really what it talks about. Like, she talks about how this was the first relationship that she really had an incredible sex life in. She was like, I was just like walking around with UTIs every day. (laughs) I feel that. (laughs) Been there, sister. Been there, babes. That's (laughs) hilarious that she said that. Yeah. And so they were pretty serious pretty quickly. On March 12th, 1970, Phil and Gretchen got married at the Malibu courthouse. He was 21 and she was 20 years old. Oh my God, cute. They were really cute. Once reality hit, however, the heat and the honeymoon period kind of passed and they had some lifestyle differences. So she had met him when he was like still shacking up with a bunch of like rock band musicians and there was like girls and drugs and groupies coming through the household and she was like whatever naivete I had was like completely gone through just being around this whole community and she was ready for them to kind of move on to the next step of their life like there was another factor which is that Phil really really did want to have kids he wanted to have a lot of kids that was the plan for someday but they were really young they didn't have a lot of money and throughout the relationship and marriage Gretchen had two abortions So we don't know how that might have factored into him kind of pulling away, especially because he was raised Catholic. His, you know, initial Catholicism was not super duper important to him. He was interested in all types of spirituality, but it felt like there might have been this like growing space between them as these things went on. She also said at some point she was like flirting with somebody or she was like, having some ideas outside of the relationship because there was somebody who was giving her attention. And Phil has this tendency, we'll see in his future relationships too, to be really hot and heavy right at the beginning, completely fall in love with somebody madly. And then things slow down and it seems like he's less and less available. He's less and less interested. 
but there's no conflict. There's no resolution because there's no conflict. It's just like this slow fade away. And I think that Gretchen was young enough that she was like, okay, you're not putting in what you used to. And I need to get that type of attention from somebody else. So they eventually both decided amicably that it was time to go their separate ways. And and both his attorney and Gretchen said that it was the most drama-free divorce. Absolutely no heartbreak on either side. She felt like, like she could never really get Phil truly emotionally. Like she could never truly know him. Gretchen said later, I don't know that we'd still be married today. Essentially saying that she also took responsibility for her part in the breakup. It wasn't just him. Because fame and glory might have changed all that. But from what I believe and the things I've read, Phil didn't change. So he didn't change who he was as a person at all throughout his later fame. Between 1973 to 1980, Phil did a lot of work. Like I said, he was designing album covers for Poco, America, Crosby, Stills, and Nash. He did earn enough doing that to buy himself a little house in Sherman Oaks. But he was working in a very solitary fashion by this point because it was mostly freelance work. And so he would work a lot from his home. There was another office because his brother had a company that sometimes he would work out of. But it was a very solitary job. And he was having this itch that he needed something social, but again, a calling to entertainment, to the stage. And this shows this push and pull Phil always had between his extroverted and introverted sides. He needed socialization. He wanted to perform, but then there was a big part of him that needed that space, that quiet time as well. He decided to itch that scratch by attending an improv comedy sketch group show. This was The Groundlings. And he fell in love. So immediately he was like, I am so into this energy, this thinking on your feet, this just naturally you have to stand up there and you have to quip and you have to be funny and you have to really be involved in this storytelling and imagination. He thought it was just such an incredible medium for acting. It is. It's amazing. And when it's good, like there's one that I saw that I still think about today. Was that Upright Citizen Brigade? Yeah, when the person was at a strip club pretending to be salary. <laughs> were we together? I think we were at that same I one. I think maybe. we might have been. Yeah. Yeah. That was the one where I was coming to see you for that show. And that's when I got in the fender bender and made you come drive my car. Yes. That's the same night. <laughs> so he was completely in love with it. So he started going to the shows regularly. And at one of the shows, they asked for a volunteer to come up from the audience. And Phil got up there and immediately they said he was like a hurricane on stage. It was like he fit right in with the actual company with a troupe or whatever it's called. They were like, we love you. So he went backstage later and he's like, is there any way I can figure out how to join? And they were like, sure, you're in. But in the book, they also say that back then it had just basically been founded when he joined. And they were like, oh yeah, back then we used to like let anyone join for $25. Oh my God. <laughs> so it sounds like a real feat that he got in right away, but they were like, yeah, we let everyone join. We had two sex workers join and they like got into a screaming match and then left. And we were like, well, that was an experience. Oh my God. <laughs> I'm sure they used that in improv later. <laughs> yeah, right. But this is really where he began to shine. Phil soon became one of the Groundlings standouts. And the Groundlings, for you guys, if you don't know, there's like three, four maybe different improv groups that really like feed Saturday Night Live. Like that's where they get a lot of their talent. 
it's like the Groundlings, like UCB and Second City. Those are the big ones. I think Second City is the biggest. But some of the other famous Groundlings are Will Ferrell, Sherry O'Terry, Will Forte, Maya Rudolph, Kristen Wiig. They were all also much after <laughs> Phil Hartman, but in the Groundlings as well. Two other performers who came up in the Groundlings at the same time were Paul Rubens, a.k.a. Pee Wee Herman, and John Lovitz, the latter of whom looked at Phil as a mentor and was a very, very close friend until Phil's death. Phil became something of a star, and he was even called the resident sex symbol by some of the other Groundlings. Men or women? Women liked him, I guess. I guess he got around in the Groundlings. Here's what John Lovitz and a few of his other contemporaries at the Groundlings said. Do it in a John Lovitz voice, though. <laughs> I cannot. <laughs> I can't do it. You know, it's so funny because John Lovitz is always so annoying and he's always so contemptible in his characters. But reading this book, you love John Lovitz. He's such a good friend to Phil. He loves him so much. He's so thankful. He's the one who tries to get Lauren Michaels to get him on SNL. He's just a very, very faithful and loyal friend. But yeah, because I think of him as these like really obnoxious characters. We thought of him as a big star, even though he wasn't known outside of that world, said John Lovitz. We'd all be sitting on the floor laying out the scene. We'd be like, okay, Phil, you're a shoe salesman. The lights would go down and come up and we were just waiting. We knew that whatever he was going to say was nothing you could ever imagine or think of. Then he would say it and our jaws would drop open. He could do any voice, play any character, make his face look different without makeup. He was the king of the groundlings. More than a few former cohorts also said that he was artistically generous besides that. He wanted everyone to succeed. He didn't like to see people left behind. So he was phenomenal to work for. Phil's charisma, though far more understated offstage than on, proved effective on the dating front within the groundlings. He loved women, but he was always in trouble. He was a big fish in a little pond right away, she said, because he was really good looking, very funny, and really, really gifted. And women flock to that. There's like a few things that are more attractive than like looks with men, but like, and I'm sure with women too, but from my perspective and my experience and like someone who's gifted at something is like unbelievably attractive. It's so funny how a totally otherwise normal person just walking down the street when you see them in their milieu, yes. when you see them, what they're like born to do, whether it's acting or comedy or sports, like, or any sort of performance, playing music, and they're just on fire, you're like, oh, I want some of that lightning. Phil was creatively on fire. And this is when he met wife number two, Lisa Jarvis, who may or may not have actually been the real, true, great love and soulmate of Phil's life. Lisa was a spicy little number, described as a self-possessed free spirit of 23 years old. And she's also on the 2020 special, still absolutely gorgeous. They ended up meeting at a nightclub where Phil came up to her and started dancing with her, but she had come with somebody else. So at the end of the night, he asked her if they could go somewhere else. And she said, no, it's rude. I, I came here with somebody else. So I'm going to leave. And he's like, well, can I have your phone number? And she said, I don't have a pen. Do you have a pen? He's like, I don't have a pen. And so he said, just tell me and I'll remember it. And she was like, oh my gosh, I'm never going to hear from this guy. They'd been drinking. It was like really late at night. Everyone's leaving. It's the wee early hours of the morning. And so she told him and apparently he chanted it all the way home over and over again in his car until he got home and could write it down. So and funny. he had the right number. Wow. And it was probably only seven digits back then. 
Yes, I bet it was. It kind of reminds me of my parents too, because my parents met at a house party, I think. And my dad didn't have a plate. He had a marker, but he didn't have anything to write on. So he wrote my mom's phone number with a Sharpie on his living room wall. Oh my God. (laughs) Yeah. And so when people went, I think it was his house. It might've been somebody else's house, which is even worse. Whenever they would go to this house where it had frequent parties, people would always come back to my mom if she wasn't there and be like, oh, why is your phone number on this guy's wall? Oh my God, poor Rhonda. <laughs> yeah. So this romance also moved very quickly. Within only a couple weeks of meeting, Lisa moved in with Phil. Wow. Yeah. This is definitely history repeating itself as far as his MO when it comes to love. About this, Lisa said, Phil was glamorized by people. That's the word he used when he fell in love. He was glamorized by beautiful women. And he was definitely hopelessly bewitched by Lisa. And although Lisa's fierce independent streak sometimes left Phil wondering if she felt similarly, she was strongly attracted to him as well. I was lovestruck, she said, and I wanted to be in love. So the lovesick pair tied the knot on December 18th, 1982. And this was a really electric time in both of their lives. Phil was still doing some freelance graphic work. He was doing lots of improv shows with the Groundlings. And he was also at this point landing TV and radio spots. So he was beginning his burgeoning on-screen career. And Lisa was an artist creating neon installations and freestanding wood sculptures. So they're both creating. She also had a serving job to pay the bills. And she was making a ton of money because it was like this Hollywood hotspot. And so they were kind of like this artistic pair, like doing all these jobs, staying up and smoking cigarettes and talking all night about their various artistic endeavors. The place that she worked was called Muse, and it was on Beverly Boulevard. So I looked it up to see what's there now. I knew it wasn't open. And I guess that there's a taqueria called Petty Cash there. Oh, yeah. In the same. Yeah. So that's the location of where this restaurant was that she worked at. You said they live in West Hollywood, or I'm just imagining that because he's at the Ground Lakes. He had a house in Sherman Oaks at this point. It's a long way to drive home, chanting a number. (laughs) It is. Well, I don't know where. So that was the restaurant she worked at. I don't know if it was like a different club from where they met. They actually met. Yeah. But just like Gretchen before her, Lisa could not really access all of Phil. Even as she feels so close to him, it's her best friend. She loves him. And he started cooling on her for reasons that she could never decipher. Still, to this day, has no idea what was going on with him. And it just might have been Phil having a moment of doubt or depression about his career and where he was going and what he was doing. It might have just been something that was involved with him and not Lisa. But for whatever reason, he began to withdraw from Lisa. Lisa said to author Mike Thomas that she craved attention, engagement, sex, conversation from her husband. This was supposed to be the two of them, like Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy, creating and being together for the rest of their days. And all of a sudden, it was very different. So they stopped having as much sex. According to Mike Thomas's book, Lisa's need for constant engagement was getting on Phil's nerves. And it was distracting him, this is what he told her at the time, from creating new material. You just need to entertain yourself, Phil had told her. Stop bothering me. You need to have a life. But they were married, Lisa said. It was supposed to be their life. 
She would later say that Phil's extreme distance felt almost emotionally abusive. And he was now making her feel bad about her need for attention, her need for sex. Lisa was insatiable, a black hole. Nobody could ever make her happy. So why didn't she just stop bothering him? And Lisa was like, well, be careful what you wish for, because if you push me hard enough, I will go away. Of course. Any sane person would, for sure. Yeah. And she said also that sometimes he was just sullen, but he wouldn't talk about what was wrong. I feel like this is just such an artist personality trait, too. Yeah. And he didn't want to talk about it. He didn't like conflict. So if she was like, hey, what's going on? You seem really down. He's like, it's fine. I don't want to talk about it. And so she never could understand what was actually going on or what was going wrong in their relationship. Lisa said that she knew the marriage was over when they took a trip to Santa Barbara for their very first anniversary. Lisa said that she got all dolled up in sexy lingerie and high heels, and she was standing over him on the bed, and he said, ugh, could you just stop? Oh, no. Yeah. I'd say it's over, too. Yeah, it's not a great feeling. And she said that that was it. She was like, yeah, I can stop. I could stop forever, actually. She said she just put on her pajamas and read a book, and she just knew at that point if there was no interest in that. And she was like, I was like this cute little 120-pound firecracker. I was awesome. She was like, I was a babe. Like, he should have been responding. And so I think that the marriage limped on for like six or seven months after this until they officially decided to separate. She later said, the hardest thing of all was leaving all of that irreplaceable specialness because of the frustration of getting it in only glimpses, like a sunny day in Scotland. That that was worse, like just not knowing when you were going to get it again than actually stepping away. I do think that Phil loved Lisa a lot. I mean, they tried to get back together at some point when she had a new boyfriend and she cheated on her new boyfriend with Phil again. And it felt like they were like these... Soulmates just could not get their shit together for whatever reason in this lifetime. But I also think that that was another thing. His family also said this about him, that he could be struggling financially or emotionally or physically. And he didn't like to burden anyone else with what was going on with himself. So he would instead just kind of do the, you know, when like a cat is feeling ill or sick or it's close to death and it just like goes out into the woods to die away from its loved ones. And that was definitely more of his M.O. So it's entirely possible that now at this point in his life, he's in his mid-30s. He hasn't really made it as an actor. He's not really sure if he should be focusing on acting. I know that Lisa said also during their marriage, she was like, screw it. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not pursuing it. I'm just going to go back to being a graphic artist. And she was the one who was like, no, you're talented. You can't do that. So I think maybe there was a lot of his own self-doubt that kind of pushed him in a position of pushing her away. Totally. In 1985 and 1986, Phil had two very major events that would change the course of his life happen. In early 1985, he met the woman who'd become his third wife. And in 1986, he landed a writer-performer role on Saturday Night Live. Wow. I love Saturday Night Live. I know. I do too. Yeah. We watched it forever. Dan, Andy's husband, was on it once. It was very cool. It was very cool. He was drumming for Gwen Stefani and I was so excited. I just have like this video of me like screaming every time he comes on. Screaming at your deaf dog. (laughs) My poor deaf dog. Well, luckily she was deaf because then she didn't have to hear my high-pitched squeals. It's Uncle Dan! Which is very funny that I was calling him Uncle Dan to my deaf dog. So in early 1985, he met 
this woman that would become his most long-standing wife and love of his life. Her name was Bryn Omdahl, though she had been born Vicky Joe from Thief River Falls, Minnesota. If you've been looking for a way to supercharge your daily focus and mental clarity, then you will love today's sponsor, Cognitive Switch by Juvenescence. Okay, guys, I'm sure you're with me when I say that on any given day, it just seems like there is so much more to get done than I ever possibly could. I second that. (laughs) And because of that, finding ways to get an extra boost in focus and mental clarity without becoming a total coffee zombie would be incredibly helpful. Yes, I'm finally starting to break my eight shots of espresso a day (laughs) habit that I have been using to get all of the research and writing done for Love Murder. And Cognitive Switch, it's a really amazing product for my brain that works in a unique way. Our brains usually get most of their energy from glucose, but they also thrive on ketones. Ketones are a highly efficient fuel source because they are easy to break down and produce a high amount of energy when used by cells. Cognitive Switch's formula gives your body the building blocks to create its own ketones, the alternate and efficient fuel source your brain already loves, which is what makes that boost in your mental performance happen. I've been using Cognitive Switch for a few weeks now, and I've been really impressed. I mentioned before that it is super duper helpful as I'm trying to power through the afternoon lulls in script writing, but I'm finding myself feeling more focused in other day-to-day situations as well. One other really important note is the flavor. Ketones are pretty notorious for being bitter, but the scientists at the healthy aging company Juvenescence have developed a formula that has all the same effectiveness while actually tasting great. There's also a great flavorless powder version that you can mix into your favorite drinks. Cognitive Switch is clinically proven to get you into brain-boosting ketosis in just 30 minutes. Contains no sugar, no artificial sweeteners, no artificial colors or flavors, is stimulant-free, and has a low glycemic index. Here's the exciting part. Cognitive Switch just launched, and for a limited time, our listeners can enjoy a special offer. Visit juvelabs.com lovemurder. That's J-U-V. L-A-B-S dot com slash lovemurder to get 20% off your order. Don't miss out on this opportunity to start your journey towards enhanced mental performance. Remember, by adding ketones to your routine with Cognitive Switch, you're doing something extra to support your brain. Unlock your brain's potential and experience the power of Cognitive Switch. Thanks again to Cognitive Switch for sponsoring today's episode. And now back to the show. So he was 36 or 37 at this point, and she was a decade younger, although neither of them cared about this age difference. Bryn was truly drop-dead gorgeous. She is very, very, very pretty. She was an aspiring model and actress who had met Phil at a producer's house party. And apparently right before she met Phil, she had been kind of complaining to the producer that she could never meet a nice guy in Hollywood. And then boom, there's Phil. Phil was instantly head over heels for the tall, slender blonde. And she had like this really big, like thick, beautiful blonde hair. I think being from Minnesota too, she was like, had that like tall, like Viking maiden. Yeah. (laughs) Drink milk directly from the cow. Exactly. Yeah. She was like Lando Lakes over here. (laughs) And she also had a, a, like a great body. She was a swimsuit model. She didn't get very famous ever, but she had the looks of somebody who absolutely could have been. She has like, Kim Basinger's face is like more precise and more technically beautiful. But like, if you squint at Bryn, she kind of has that vibe. 
So Bryn's brother made an appearance on the 2020 special and he described her as growing up in Minnesota, popular. She was generous. She was just an artsy kid who played the piano and she wanted to perform from a very young age. So she had a lot in common with Phil. It seemed like Bryn was akin to the hundreds of thousands of beautiful young women who are absolutely it. The dream girl, the head of everything, homecoming queen in their tiny little town. And then they move to LA to try to make it as a model or an actress. And they're like, holy shit, there's like all of us. (laughs) There's thousands of the prettiest girl in their towns here trying to be the prettiest girl in this town. And that's very hard to do. So I think that it was proving to be a lot more difficult than she thought to break into the business. She ended up dating some famous people. She dated Rob Reiner, the director. And she got kind of into the scene. This is, of course, in the 1980s. And she got a little too into the party scene. Yeah, I mean, it's the 80s. It's the 80s. In and Hollywood. She got a little in Hollywood. So she was doing a little too much cocaine. And she would end up having substance abuse issues for the rest of her life, primarily around cocaine. So by the time she met Phil, she'd actually already been through rehab once. She was 27, you said? Yeah. So she's like 26, 27 at that point. And she'd already gone through rehab once for her cocaine addiction. Bryn and Phil had a very passionate relationship marked by big fights and even bigger makeup sessions. Phil was very, very drawn to her incredible beauty, and she was charmed by his charisma and the fact that he was already a star on the rise at this point. She could go see him at Groundlings. He had some connections. He was already on TV doing various ads and radio spots. I do think, however, that there were some fundamental misunderstandings in the relationship right from the beginning. While Bryn and Phil both had general ideas of the future they would potentially want together, which was to get married and have children. Friends and family of Bryn's believe that Phil may have promised to help Bryn out in the industry. So when they first got together, she wanted to still act. And there may have been Phil saying, oh, well, I'll introduce you to everyone I know. I will get you cast in things that I'm cast in. It'll definitely happen for you. And so when it didn't or when he tried, but then it failed, instead of getting upset at, you know, the industry or figuring out how to maybe go get an acting coach or something. I think she started to just be mad at Phil and doubt that he was actually trying to help her in the way that he had once promised her. Okay. And how far into their relationship is this? From what I gathered, people who knew Bryn felt like when they first got together, she wasn't with Phil for his connections. At that point, too, he hadn't even yet been hired for SNL. It was about to happen. But he did have some connections. It was kind of like the feeling was, we're both going to do this. We're both going to be actors. We're going to be a power couple, essentially. And, you know, we'll also get married and have kids. Whereas Bryn was kind of focused on thinking, he's going to help me along. Like husband and wives should, like spouses should help one another. And I'm not going to be a stay-at-home mom. I'm going to be a working actress and mother. He was thinking kind of, yes, I'm going to do everything I can and it would be great if it worked out, but it also would be great if you want to stay home with the kids and I will provide for the family. So I don't know how much of this was communicated right at the beginning about, well, what happens if it doesn't work out for either one of us? 
And his fallback was always going back to graphic arts if necessary. He was also writing for Pee Wee Herman and he had a spot on the Pee Wee Herman show at this point. So he was making some money from that. He did end up having a fallout with Pee Wee Herman at some point. Their partnership ended. We just watched Pee Wee's Big Adventure the other day, Dan and I. Did you? Yeah. R.I.P. Paul Rubens. I know. So Phil started SNL during the 86 into 87 season, and he very quickly became a staple of the cast. It was kind of just like Groundlings. Like he got in there and he hit the ground running and he was immediately somebody who is put in lots and lots of skits. Who you can't imagine the show existing without right after the end. Yeah. Co-star said that he was the ultimate professional. He was always on time. He was always on his mark. He was always committed to the sketch. And he was, just like the Groundling said, a very considerate artist where he would basically volley these things for the other actors to really spike it. He was such a valued and beloved co-star that his other castmates began calling him the glue. Cute. Yeah, so there's some conversation about where this actually came from. In one book, it says that it came from Adam Sandler, who was a younger member of the cast the when glue. he was there. And it was funny because he said that there was like some reading that they were doing where he originally thought they were saying boo because the other castmates started chanting while he was at the reading going glue, 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 glue. And he's like, are they saying boo? And they're like, no, it's glue. Oh my <laughs> You're the glue. <laughs> and Phil was so good that he ended up in like crazy amounts of sketches. Literally, they'd come for table reads. And most of the performers had like two, three scripts for that sketch. And he'd come with like 12. Crazy. But nobody was mad at him. I guess that he was so great and he was so awesome to work with and so professional that nobody cared that he was in consistently more sketches than anyone else. And if he's helping other people like land the joke, it's like you want him in your skit. Yeah, you want him to alley-oop ya. Yeah, he was an incredible performer whose work, though, was very often overshadowed by the flashier castmates that had these signature characters that they would kept coming back to, like Adam Sandler and like Opera Man and all the things that Adam Sandler did, Chris Farley, Dana Carvey had like the church lady, and then Mike Myers, Wayne's World there. He was among this really talented cast that all had these big characters and he never really found his I I guess he did have the unfrozen lawyer but it wasn't like in the same playing field so he didn't often get as much attention from the audience but within the cast and within the industry everybody knew how incredibly talented he was and Lorne Michaels actually said Phil has done more work that's touched greatness than pretty much anyone else who's ever been here. Over eight years at SNL, Phil's life changed drastically during this period. I mean, a lot of success and opportunity, obviously, but also on a personal side. Britt and Phil were married on November 25th, 1987 in New York City during a break of his second season of SNL. So some of his friends were not a big fan of this relationship. It had already had so much conflict in it. It was very dramatic. Some of his friends also said that his previous two wives had been quirky and artistic and kind of goofy, alternative, like alt girl, you know, the the art girl or something, rather than full on ice queen, homecoming queen. Hollywood glam. Yeah. Hollywood glam. Yes. And they were worried about Phil because they did seem to have a lot of conflicts even before they were married. And also, this was just a totally different type of woman than he had 
been with. Now, all three of his wives were very, very beautiful. And he had an eye for beauty for sure and taste for it. But she was the type of beautiful that some of his castmates described, like the type of woman who walks in a room and everybody stares at her. And if she was like standing near the stage, some of the SNL castmates were joking, like, you have to leave because no one's going to pay attention to the show. So funny. Yeah, which Phil loved. I mean, that was something he needed. And people noticed that he needed that. And he craved that. He craved having the most beautiful woman in the room on his arm. But they don't know where it came from. And I don't even know if Phil knew where it came from. I think, I guess, a lot of guys probably have that desire. Yes. (laughs) Some of his friends, including Cassandra Peters, better known as Elvira, did try to dissuade him from marrying her. And, And Elvira was like real straight up with him, telling him absolutely not, do not propose to her. And that actually resulted in a falling out. And they didn't speak for... I think two or three years after that, because she wasn't supportive of his relationship. She said to author Mike Thomas, Bryn just wasn't right for Phil, who seemed like he got into relationships really, really fast. It seemed like one day he was dating someone and the next day he was going to get married. Yeah. He was head over heels and that was the only girl for him. I saw this happen several times. And with Bryn, Phil had a lot to lose monetarily because he's making good coin for the first time. I also didn't care for her that much personally. All I can think about when I think of Phil is the word authentic. And my feelings toward Bryn were phony. Opposite. Yeah. Peterson sensed that Bryn was intensely jealous of anyone, especially females, she deemed a threat to her relationship with Phil. She was very jealous of Elvira. She said, but first of all, I was married. And even if I wasn't, Phil and I were really more like relatives. So she had nothing to worry about. But she was kind of weird and cold. I'd met Phil's other exes and liked them all. With this one, I was like, oh my God. So he went through with it anyway. And that makes sense in retrospect, because what no one knew at the time was that by the time they were married, Bryn was already pregnant with their first child. Their baby boy, Sean, was born in June of 1988. And although the couple were truly overjoyed, becoming a mother seemed not to stop Bryn's jealousy. It did not give her any sense of security. Yeah, I mean, I think... Being at home with the baby doesn't help with that. I was hoping that you were saying that it was going to stop her other addiction issues. Oh, you know, it, it might have for a little while. Bryn relapsed a few times. I'm hoping it wasn't when the kids were baby babies. I do not think it did because I feel like I would have read about that in the book. Yeah. But it would happen later on in her life when they were a little older. Yeah, no, I don't think having a baby helps with jealousy issues at all. I think you're at home with the baby, taking care of the kid, doing what she apparently said that she didn't want to do from the get-go is be a stay-at-home mom and he's on TV with all these beautiful women. It was hard, too, because they were kind of between L.A. and New York. Mm -hmm. So the distance and the time difference. The distance, it depends. I just think it depended on, like, which house they were staying in or if she was living with him during SNL because on his breaks from SNL, he always went back to California because that was the place he loved more than anything else. So Phil had remained friendly with Lisa, his second wife, although he didn't really talk about it with Bryn because she was so jealous. Now, Lisa didn't know this. She didn't really know Bryn at all. But she knew that Phil had always wanted to have children and that he was so happy. And she wanted Phil and Bryn to eventually be in her lives as friends. So she ended up writing them a card, which was addressed to Bryn as well. It was a congratulations card about the birth of their child. And she was shocked at the letter she received back from Bryn. 
Mm-hmm. She talks about it and you might remember me. She said that her handwritten sentiments went something like this. This is what Lisa wrote. So Lisa wrote, dear baby, welcome to the world. You've chosen great parents. I hope you have a fantastic life and get lots of brothers and sisters and everything you've ever wanted. And if you ever need anything, you've got an auntie and me. She said it was just simple, sweet. That's so that was cute. the message. That gave me goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. Well, the note Bryn sent her back was anything but cute. Did Phil read the baby note? Yes. Okay. So this is a quote from Lisa. I got four pages back of the most vitriolic vituperation threatening my life, telling me that if I ever came near her child, she'd kill me, calling me every name in the book, telling me I'd better keep my hands off her husband or she'd come and rip my eyes out. Uh... Lisa says it was just insane. She never knew me. She never met me. She never knew anything about me. Alarmed, Lisa called Phil to alert him, but he already knew. Bryn was furious, he said, and he was partly at fault. When Bryn had asked Phil if she and he were soulmates, Phil had answered honestly, too honestly. Oh, no. No. Instead, inexplicably, he told Bryn that he and Lisa were soulmates. When Lisa heard this, she was dumbfounded. Was he stupid? She wondered out loud. Moreover, why was Bryn's rage directed at Lisa if Phil's comment is what sparked it? I said, not only do you have your head up your ass, your wife is a scary creature, Lisa recalls. Phil, though, warned her not to contact him through them ever again. He also told her, you should have seen the letter she wanted to write. I can't believe that he was okay with her sending that. Well, that's what Lisa said. She said that it gave her pause. Phil knew what Bryn wrote and he let her send it? Yeah. It's like just she thought at that point they deserve each other. Phil should have protected her from that hideousness, from that threatening message, threatening violence, and he did not. So she hung up and they didn't speak again for two years. And when they did begin speaking again, because he did really look to her like a soulmate, they had to do it in utter secrecy so that she wouldn't get murdered by Bryn, potentially. Whoa. I mean, I think that she especially hated Lisa, but no person was safe. And I'm not even saying just women. Bryn was extremely jealous of women who were close to Phil for any reason, professionally or otherwise. And even some men that he spent time with. She was just extremely jealous. It's just anyone but her. Yeah. Anyone but her. Phil was very close to his castmate, Jan Hooks. And the two of them often portrayed husband and wife on SNL or they'd have to like peck kiss or something. Like in you a do scene. realize that you married an actor, right? Like, <laughs> come on. Like, guys. I mean, she's lucky he wasn't doing like sex scenes. She'd lose her mind. Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Oh, that's a bad example because Jennifer Aniston did lose her husband on that one. I'm just saying. Yeah, it happens. Jan always thought, well, Bryn's jealous of everyone, but at least we have a good relationship because she said that Bryn used to actually joke like, oh, I'm his real life and you're his work wife kind of thing. And so she's like, oh, yeah, at least like she doesn't hate me. But later on, the police would find (laughs) letters that she had written, that Bryn had written and not sent to Jan threatening her life, telling her to stay away from Phil. She like has a voodoo doll with Jan's head on it. <laughs> yeah. So Jan didn't even realize this until years later that she was also intensely threatened by Jan, his co-worker. Did Bryn's brother comment on any of this at all in the book? No. He commented a little bit. We're going to get touch on her growing resentment later as she continues to not find 
her own path to fame through acting or modeling. I know, like, as you said that, I'm like, she's a mom. Like, that's an amazing path. But yeah, it's through, it's for fame. Yes. And he says that she was frustrated because it was something that they had always talked about, at least from Bryn's opinion, had been part of the whole package that they were going to be creatively working together or apart, but just both working, that she needed more than just motherhood. And she had never lied about wanting that. He knew that about her. Okay. She's saying this or it's confirmed. Uh, We really don't know. We do know that he did try. So we're going to talk about Phil's attempts to help her get roles and on-air parts. And you can only lead a horse to water. You know what I mean? Yes. There was attempts. Like, it's not like he just was like, no, you have to be like my barefoot pregnant wife (laughs) and you're not allowed to (laughs) do anything. He did try. So we'll get into those attempts later. And going back to the jealousy, though, Another thing was, how did Phil handle this? Like, think about how badly he handled the thing with Lisa. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me at the beginning of the relationship, there was almost a thrill for Phil that this gorgeous woman not only chose him, because he's a good looking guy, but he's guys, he's really like average good looking. Like in real life, you'd be like, oh, that's like a good looking guy. But when you're on TV and you're trying to make it in movies, you'd be like, oh, he's he could play the average guy, you know, like jingle all the way, the dad across the street. So he was a relatively average looking guy and she was very, very pretty. And I feel like he felt like he had scored this beautiful wife. Like the two of them had gone on like Howard Stern and Howard Stern's just like, oh my God, she's the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. And he was like going crazy for Bryn. And I think that it gave Phil that joy and that excitement that he had this beautiful woman. And then I almost wonder if at the beginning, at least, it was like, well, not only is she crazy about me? She's like real crazy about me. She's like so jealous. That's how much she loves me. Yeah. It was like an ego boost almost. And that's maybe why he wasn't stopping it or wasn't bothered by it initially. Initially. This type of behavior wears, takes a hard toll on a relationship if it doesn't stop. The couple welcomed their second child, a daughter named Bergen, on February 8th, 1992. And Phil really was in love with being a dad. They actually announced Bergen's birth on Saturday Night Live. I saw the clip. And Phil is just choking back tears. Really? He's just so verklempt, to use another (laughs) SNL word from a sketch. Yeah, he's just choking back tears. It's so clear that he's so proud and so excited to be a dad. So Phil was making actually pretty big bucks on SNL at this point. And he was commanding a very high salary for ads now that he was a voice and a face. I think he got something, and this is like of the time. So this is, we're talking about the early 90s. He made something like over a million dollars for a Coca-Cola ad. So they were doing very well at this point. They bought a beautiful house in Encino. They were, by all accounts, wonderful parents, both Bryn and Phil. I mean, especially Bryn. Everyone says that she was a wonderful, wonderful, hands-on, giving mother. There are some home videos of the family, and truly both Phil and Bryn appear to be joyous, loving, very engaged parents. And Phil was as much as he could be. He had his SNL stuff. He had two voice roles, two voice parts on The Simpsons at this point. He was landing movie roles that he would do in his breaks from SNL. And he had that lucrative ad work to fit in, like I was talking about. So Between all of those things, Phil wasn't really home a whole lot. 
especially when you're getting to a point where you have to have some consistency for the children. They're getting a little older. Maybe they need to go to preschool. They need to have to be in their room with their things. You can't just travel with them like when they're a little baby. So he wasn't home a whole lot. And this put a lot of pressure on the relationship. Obviously, she had a nanny. She had help. She wasn't completely without any sort of assistance. But it doesn't make up for the absence of a father. It doesn't make up for the absence of a partner that you like have a glass of wine with at the end of the night and go, holy fuck, that day just kicked my ass. Yeah. You know how it is like when Dan's touring or something. No, it's so different when you're by yourself. Like, I mean, we both do it where when you're traveling for trade shows Mm -hmm. and it's just like when they're back, it's like, thank God. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, you can have nine to five help or something, but it doesn't take away that it's really hard, which is, again, we've mentioned this on other episodes, like really cheers to you single parents out there. It is a hard job. It's so hard. Yeah. So this was a problem. So she was getting frustrated. She would call him before he was going on rehearsal at SNL. His makeup artist was saying that she'd be calling and screaming at him. If she was in New York, she would like be down in the lobby fighting with him before he was about to go on stage. It was a mess. and. He came back to his makeup artist and was like, I don't know what she wants me to do because I'm the breadwinner. This is my job. She knew she married an actor. Like the fact that I'm working so much is good. It's great for her. And I think that they both had points here, which is like what you and I were talking about, which is it's just not the same. It doesn't matter. He could hire more nannies. It's not the same as having an involved partner to share your life with and to see all your kids first whatevers and actually be a present parent even though he was great when he was there. But then on his side, dude, don't throw him off before he goes on live television. I know, I know. Oh. I know, it's so hard. Could you imagine? You would never do that to Dan, like fuck up his life before a performance. No, but his career has always been like of utmost importance to me. Yeah, and that's the way I think you have to be, especially if you have a partner that does something that's highly performance-based, that's going out in front of thousands of people or millions of people on live television. Yeah, yeah. You have to be the right partner for that person. But it seems like, what is she actually mad about? Is she actually mad about him not being there or is she mad that she's not on camera? I think a little bit of everything. So there was, he even got, you know how like on SNL when they introduce the cast and they say their names, they have like that intro of like them on video of them like looking at the, yeah, they like turn their face. Well, his has a beautiful blonde woman, but you don't see her face is obscured because it's like she's looking at him and he turns from looking at her to the camera. And that was actually Bryn. But if you look at it, and I don't know, maybe we'll be able to put like the little video clip on our Instagram. Her earring, she has like this long dangly earring, is actually moving in the clip. And it's because she got this part, because of course he was like, I want to sit with my wife. And she kept trying to turn to face the camera so that her face was in the shot, like with his. And the director was like, no, turn around. Like, it's like his introductory shot to the show. Like, you, your face can't be in it. And so when you look at it, you don't see her face, but you just see her earrings swinging because the director was like, turn around. (laughs) So then her earring is moving when he got the shot. So she wanted to be involved in everything that he was doing that had something to do with performing. And it just wasn't realistic. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. 
Sometimes you just have one of those nights, a night where you're just about to fall asleep and then your brain decides to start racing. Yeah. Or you wake up in the morning at five and the same thing happens. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It turns out one of the best ways to get those racing thoughts to stop bothering you is to actually talk them through. Therapy creates space to do exactly that so you can work through your negative thought cycles and find some inner peace and calm. I know that so many of our listeners are on similar journeys as we are, as moms trying to figure out how to be the best for their kids or pursuing education or careers. This sort of real-life stuff can create real day-to-day challenges that therapy can really help with. Absolutely. One of the real truths about therapy is that it's not just for people who've experienced major trauma. It's for anyone who needs space to process and help learn positive coping skills. If you're considering therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's online and designed to fit with your busy life. After filling out a brief questionnaire, you'll be matched with a licensed therapist. And of course, if for any reason that's not a fit, you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get a break from your thoughts with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com lovemurder today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lovemurder. So as he was starting to figure out what he was going to do after SNL. And I think it was before his like eighth season even started because they start like saying, this will probably be my last season. Let's talk to NBC about what we're doing. NBC actually gave him a three-year contract that said like if he did like I think one more year of SNL or something like afterwards, they guaranteed him that they would make a pilot around him and his concept. He'd be the star of it. And they would guarantee a pilot plus six or seven additional episodes, no matter what. Wow. The contract also guaranteed him a lot of money. So he started thinking about, while he was still finishing up at SNL, what that show would be like. And Phil's talent was always for his crazy, like, improv characters, the characters that he came up with. So he wanted to do something that was more like a variety show that would showcase all of his many talents and his recurring characters. And he could also, of course, bring in all of his famous friends for little bit parts. And to that end, he started working with a couple different writers. There's like one group that were like kind of like the A-team, but I think he talked to a a bunch of different writers, which you do because you want to get all the creative ideas. And one of the writing group was like these two younger guys that absolutely adored him because they had like kind of like, I think sent a cold pitch his way or something. And he responded like, this isn't the direction for me, but I love your writing style. Like, let's talk about developing something for what they were going to call the Phil show. And they said that they had this like idea of like kind of a variety show, but also like centered in his real life somehow too. And they wanted Jan Hooks to play his wife because she was well known. They had great chemistry. They were amazing team together. And he was like, no, actually, I want my wife Bryn to play my wife. And they were like, well, is she any good? And he's like, I think she'll be the perfect person to play the role, like not answering the question. So already he absolutely was trying to get her involved in anything that he had any real power over. Yeah. This was like the first time he was able to do something like that. And she did get a speaking part in a Rob Reiner film, another man that she had dated. And they show it on the 2020. She's in this movie I've never even heard of. So I can't even tell you guys what it's called. And it's literally like she walks in, she's like a waitress and she's like a, like a milkshake for you or a Coke for you and a sex on the beach for you. She's hot, man. She looks great on camera. She's beautiful. 
but the acting is very wooden. It's like a very awkward, not natural presentation. It's clear that she was a stunning woman that definitely would not have been able to carry any sort of role that was more than just a couple lines. The failure to make it in show business and Bryn's occasional relapses made the marriage very hard to sustain. It seemed like they were teetering on the brink of divorce several times. Those close to Phil said that she was prone to fits of anger and violence. She would attack Phil or throw objects at him to get his attention or during fights. He was also finally at this point growing very tired of her controlling and jealous ways. He complained to a friend that she was even furious when he got fan mail, as if that was something he could control. He told friends that he had never wanted Bryn to stand in his shadow or feel like she was standing in his shadow. Of course, he wanted her to be fulfilled. But this came to a head when Phil officially left SNL and he had some more time on his hands. Now, Bryn had really hoped and maybe assumed that Phil was going to be spending all of his off time with her and the children. But instead, he had all these toys, essentially, he had bought. He had a new boat. He had a small plane that he had learned how to pilot. And he loved to take the plane or the boat over to Catalina Island and go fishing or scuba diving. There was just a lot of outdoor activities that he loved to do. And he would go with one of his friends, this guy named Britt Marin. And I guess that at one point, Brynn even said, well, if you're going to go out boating, just take me with you. And one of his friends said that he said that the water was really choppy and it was rocky and Brynn got sick. So she never came out again. And that friend was like, I have a sneaking suspicious he drove the boat. So it was extra choppy so that he could have this space away from his wife to retreat to. Yeah, I mean, that's like he's enjoying what he was able to provide himself from his success. He should be able to have something that he likes to do. You know what I mean? Yes. And this was managing his introvert, extrovert sides because it sounds like this guy, Britt, was like, they would like smoke pot and like talk to each other or not talk to each other or just like, you know, drink a beer, shoot the shit or be quiet and just like, look at things. And that wasn't the energy he was getting when he was with Brynn. Yeah. So she was so angry. She was started getting really jealous about Brit. And he didn't know this until much later. But at one point, she even hired a private investigator to spend something like three months or more following and documenting Brit and Phil when they were out on the boat because she was either trying to prove that they were lovers or that they were bringing women onto the boat or and having sex there, apparently. But of course, they didn't catch anything. Britt said on the 2020 that the idea of Phil having an affair was absolutely ridiculous. He was the most loyal guy. And even like in his previous marriages, infidelity had never been a factor in the dissolution of these marriages. He even told Britt, like Britt wasn't even allowed to bring his girlfriends onto the boat or other women friends because he's like, oh, if Bryn found out about this, woof, you know how she'd act. So like it was literally just the two of them every single time. Furthermore, after Martin Short's variety show had flopped, NBC wasn't like super duper keen on trying out another former SNL stars variety show. Also, I think that Chevy Chase had one at one point. It lost a ton of money. So these variety shows were not working out commercially. 
And so Phil was like, don't worry, NBC, I'll take you off the hook. Like, let's just pull the plug on the Phil show because he wasn't really finding the right hook for it anyway. But Bryn took this as a personal affront because he ended up at that point reading a script from the news radio guys and he loved it. And they already had some really interesting up and coming actors attached to it. And so even though he wasn't the star of news radio, he was just part of an ensemble. He really wanted to do that. He was really drawn towards the writing. And so when she found out that he was doing that, a show that he wasn't the showrunner for, he wasn't the star and he didn't have as much pull to get her a role, like she wasn't definitely not going to have a big role, even if he got her like, you know, an extra part. Instead of pushing forward with a show that she was guaranteed to have a leading role in, she was like, it's about me. He doesn't want to work with me. He doesn't think I'm good enough. And she made it all about herself. And I think her brother said on the show that this was like a big thing in their marriage. This is, she felt betrayed by this, essentially. Friends at Bryn, though, say that you can talk about all the jealousy and all of the frustrations about her career not taking off. But she wasn't really the only one to blame for the marital strife. They said that she was a generous and loving friend and mother who was frustrated that she had to carry the weight of the entire family, even when he wasn't working. She was sad that her husband didn't seem to truly see her and he didn't seem to need her or want her or believe in her. Despite her beauty, Bryn was unbelievably like otherworldly insecure. And her insecurities were only increasing as she was about to turn 40. And she obviously felt like there was a small window of time for her to ever have a chance to make it, especially we're talking about like the 1990s at this point, where they basically just like tossed out any woman between the ages of like 40 and like 65. Yeah. So friends, Julia Sweeney, who is also a performer on SNL and a writer for SNL named Christine Zander were friends with Bryn during this time. And they spoke to the author, Mike Thomas, saying the following about Bryn. Bryn was a great mother in every way. She was patient. She was caring. She was engaged. And it didn't seem fake. Like, now I'm in public, so I'm gonna show you what a good mom I am, Sweeney said. It seemed real. Every interaction I saw, which was a lot, I mean, I spent whole days at their house, was admirable. As a friend, Xander says, Bryn was a very sweet and goofy woman who was exceedingly generous and always had an ear for somebody else's problems. She wanted all of her friends to be happy, a state that Bryn herself found increasingly elusive. At one point, she became so fed up with Phil's disappearing act, Sweeney says, that she began talking about filing for divorce. But an attorney friend had said to wait until her marriage hit the 10-year mark, Bryn confided. A solid decade together, combined with the fact that she and Phil had two kids, would assure Bryn of a generous settlement. Sweeney could not be sure, but she thought Bryn might have just been blowing off steam. She totally loved him, Sweeney says. I think she really loved him. But as far as Bryn could tell, her less emotionally demonstrative and often passive husband was growing less and less interested in her, in them. He was no longer glamorized, no longer bursting with joy. Bryn needed to have somebody who looked at her like that, not just the world, but a guy. And I think eventually Phil didn't care as much. He wasn't looking at her like that anymore. It happens in any marriage. You're not going, oh my God, anymore. And along with other things, that was really painful for her. He wasn't as excited to be with her as he had been. And I just felt so sad. Also, I thought, God, Phil doesn't even see that Bryn is also one of those girls who's also really interesting. 
You'd think he's got a gold mine because he married her for her looks and not even so much for her looks, but for how the world looked at him when he was with her. Yes. And then that wears off because it wears off. If it were me, I'd go, oh my God, and I accidentally also married an interesting person, but I don't think he could see that. Which is a terrible feeling to feel not seen or valued for anything other than the way you look in your marriage. I know. Oh, because you can't keep that up. Makes me feel icky. Yeah. So News Radio was an ensemble comedy that also starred Maura Tierney, Dave Foley, Stephen Root, Andy Dick, and a very, like, young, handsome, like, buff Joe Rogan. The cast just adored Phil. And the show really worked because the cast were all really good actors and they all got along famously. It was a moderate hit. Like, it was a hit for sure, but it wasn't like a Seinfeld, Friends, or ER hit. But it did really well. Now, Phil still wasn't home a lot when he was shooting news radio, but he really was trying to help Bryn at this point. It seems like they were going to see a marriage counselor and he was trying to be more proactive about helping her in her career. So he had actually hooked her up with his primary agent saying, can you also represent my wife? But the agent said that Bryn was not dependable and that she didn't seem like super duper motivated for all of this talk about how much she wanted to have this career. She wasn't doing some basic things like bringing her headshots into her agent or even taking headshots. The, the agent said she never saw any, which was weird because Phil had absolutely hooked her up with a photographer to take headshots. So at that point, the agent said, do you think, Phil, she really wants to do this? Because you're asking me to represent her, but I can't really if she's not going to follow through with the things I need to get her parts. And Phil apparently said to the agent, I don't know. Like, I don't know if she really wants to do this. I can't tell you. Well, Phil's brother, John, said it in a harsher way, but probably true. He said, Bryn came to L.A. to be a star and she got sucked down the black hole of broken dreams. She was in search of a path to stardom and she urged and egged Phil to get her parts or introduce her to people or advance her career, which he attempted to do up until the point that he realized she just wasn't talented. I mean, he got chewed up and spit out, too. So it's like he's probably going to say it best. Yes. And now, John, um, at least at the time that the book came out, he's a professor who teaches musicians like what to expect from the industry and other performers like there's no guarantee out there. And you have to expect that you will be rejected many, many numbers of times. And here's alternative ways that you can support yourself, which is like one of my writing teachers did at Emerson was basically like, hey, you're not going to be able to support yourself with writing, even successful writers who publish novels and get awards have to take like teaching jobs to really like fully support themselves generally, like unless you're Stephen King or something. So I think it's really nice when teachers in creative arts also say, these are other ways you can make money while you're still being an artist that will support your gift. So Bryn turned 39 in April. Her birthday is April 11th. That's Heather's birthday and the day after mine. So funny. And her mental health did not seem to be the best around this time that she turned 39. Bryn was convinced that Phil was cheating on her. She began to tell people that he worked with or people that were simply acquaintances. I think one of them was a woman named Victoria Jackson, who I believe was one of his SNL co-stars at some point that Phil was cheating on her. And that woman was like, this seems very weird that you would tell me this and inappropriate because A, I don't think he is, but B, why would you tell me this? We barely know each other. Yeah. And Phil also told another friend 
that Bryn was not being based in reality anymore because he said that she was actually accusing him of not just not helping her, but actually actively sabotaging her career. And he was like, that's not the case. I've been doing everything I can to help her. Yeah, but like he said, it's just not reality. It's just not reality. He was also concerned about her doing a lot of plastic surgery. She was getting a lot of things done at that point. But a former nanny countered that Phil had actually encouraged her to get at least some of these procedures, saying like, yeah, that would be good. Or yeah, you should consider that. Like, I think you'd look better with like a square jaw or something. So we don't know where the fact and fiction is between was he encouraging her to get the plastic surgeries or was he concerned that she was getting too many plastic surgeries? Yeah, but it could have been both too. Yes, I think the truth is always somewhere in the middle. Slippery slope. Yeah. In any case, on May 11th, 1997, which was Mother's Day, Bryn apparently had, they had done some Mother's Day festivities that day. And then afterwards, she told Phil that she was going to go out and get some drinks. I don't know who with, if it was a friend or she was just doing it on her own. But in any case, she didn't come home all night. And when she finally returned early the next morning or mid-morning even, it was clear that she had been using and she was in not a great state. So he was really pissed about this because obviously they had children. Yeah. And he told his mother that he didn't know if he could continue to be with her if she continued to have her struggles with drugs and alcohol. And he asked her to immediately go to rehab. So she did. She went to rehab in Arizona, but she left after only three days because she said she missed her children. So she did not stay for the full program at that point. Meanwhile, castmates on news radio were noticing that Phil was coming to work disheveled with scratches on his face and in general looking worse for the wear. And this was a guy that was always on time, always looked impeccable. This was very counter to how he showed up for work. So Phil began slowly confiding in some of his castmates and his ex-wife, Lisa, that there was some domestic violence going on in the home. Oh, God. So Lisa found out that Bryn was attacking him and asked him straight up, do you have a gun in the home? And he said, yeah, I think we have a couple. She has one. I have one. And she said, well, you cannot have guns in the home if she is attacking you because this is just a recipe for disaster. Like, get rid of the guns. And he said that he wasn't going to do that. He wasn't worried about Bryn shooting him at all. He was like laughing at the idea of it. He's like, but I am worried because I'm away so frequently and I travel so much that something could happen. A crazed fan could break in and she would be alone with the kids. So I want her to have that measure of protection. And Lisa said, you're crazy. Like, please, I'll do anything if you just get these guns out of the house. And he just told her that she didn't need to be concerned, even though clearly she did. At a news radio Christmas party in 1997, castmates were very put off by how mean and caustic Bryn was being about and towards Phil, whom they all adored and just absolutely loved. But they thought maybe that's just part of their relationship. They've been married for a long time. Who knows? On New Year's Eve, Phil and Bryn hosted a party, so a New Year's Eve party, and Bryn fell off the wagon after asking Andy Dick for some cocaine, which, of course, Andy had his own substance abuse issues, but he did not know that Bryn was supposed to be in recovery. 
I got to say, he takes a lot of heat for this later on. We will discuss this is like impacts him professionally. It impacts him physically that he gave Bryn Hartman some cocaine at New Year's Eve. He talks about it on the 2020, how that was the way it was. If you were addicted to coke, you were going to find it somehow and you were going to go to the people that you knew were partiers. He's completely right. He's completely right. Yeah. And if she went up to him and he didn't give it to her or he didn't have it. She would have gone yep. to somebody else yep. and she would have gotten it. Mm-hmm. So that summer, Phil turned down extra work. He turned down opportunities to do movies and he committed to really, truly working on the marriage. He wanted it to work this time and he loved Bryn still, but things were not going well at all. Bryn was using again at this point. I don't know how well she was hiding it from Phil, but there's evidence that she was using during this time period. The fighting was getting bad. Phil told a friend that he now was trying to avoid the conflicts by going to bed. As soon as she started, he would just be like, I'm really tired. And he'd go to bed and he would either really fall asleep or take something to fall asleep or he would just pretend to be asleep. Just anything to get out of the line of fire with her. But that pissed her off more because a big part of why she was angry with him was because he was avoidant and she felt like he wasn't handling things with her and wasn't talking to her and wasn't paying attention to her. So when you are feeling that way already and somebody literally pretends to be asleep to ignore you and you're already not thinking very rationally, you're going to be even angrier. 100% and coke fueled. And if you're on coke, it's going to add a lot of fuel to the fire. So she reportedly tried a few times during May of 1998 to check herself into rehab promises in Malibu, but they didn't have any vacancies. This is debated, however, because friends close to her say that she said nothing about this. So we don't know if that's actually true that she tried to check herself into rehab. I feel like they would always have somewhere for someone to go. Yeah, I feel like they'd at least say like, we don't have any beds right now, but we're going to get you into our sister facility. They're not going to turn away somebody who needs help. So Bryn spoke to a doctor about her growing unhappiness, and she was prescribed Zoloft, which is an antidepressant. It's a pretty famous antidepressant. It was, I think, feel like very big at that time, too, in the late 90s. There was a lot of advertisements for it, too, that were on TV. The cloud. Yes, the cloud that follows you around. So she ended up getting on Zoloft, but it's unclear whether her doctor ever told her that drinking has very negative side effects with Zoloft, like you shouldn't be drinking on when you're taking this form of antidepressant. We don't know if she was counseled that way. But we do know that she did return to her doctor and say that the drug was making her agitated. It was making her jump out of her skin. She didn't feel great with it, although she could have already been mixing the drug interactions and alcohol. She did get a nose surgery around this time. So she went off of it while she was recovering from a nose job, I'm assuming. They just said nose surgery. And then when she went back on it, she went on a half dose. And it seemed like that was the right dosage for her. It was a very small amount of Zoloft. Yeah, it always takes a minute, too, to try to figure out what works. Yes, absolutely. So that's kind of... Where they were on May 27th, 1998, Phil had gone boating with his good pal, Britt Marin, that day. And he thought that they were going on a date night that night. And she was like, no, actually, that's tomorrow night. Tonight, I'm going out with some friends. So can you come home and relieve the nanny? Because I'm probably going to leave a little earlier than when you get home. And he said, oh, okay, sure. They were doing like regular date nights to try to 
rekindle the relationship. Yep. She ended up leaving probably around 7.30. And then the nanny later said that Phil came in pretty much right after her. So they probably just missed each other. And the nanny said that Phil was great with the kids. He ended up like getting in the pool with them. And when the nanny left that day, she could literally hear Phil and the two kids like all like laughing and splashing and having a great time. So all is well. The nanny leaves. She had gone to Buca de Beppo to have cocktails with her friend who was at the time a writer for SNL or maybe had just left SNL. So her friend, Christine Zander. And she ended up having two Cosmopolitans, <laughs> which was the drink of the time and also still my drink of choice. <laughs> Although I always apologize when I order it. Yeah, you do. I do. I do. I'm so embarrassed. But her friend said that she was acting completely normal. She wasn't drunk. I mean, she was a, sounds like a frequent drinker. So two Cosmos weren't going to totally knock her on her ass. She was definitely still able to drive. And Bryn wanted to keep the party going. She was like, let's go somewhere else. Let's get some more drinks. And at that point, her friend was like, no, I'm exhausted. I'm going home. But it was like great talking to you. She said that they, you know, Bryn seemed like in general, kind of like still frustrated with Phil and how their sex life wasn't that great. And she talked about her recent nose surgery, but nothing seemed abnormal at all. And around 945 is when they left the bar. And the bartender even said that she was totally personable, mentioned that she was married to Phil Hartman and that next time she came in, she was going to bring him with her. So the bartender remembered that. So after that, she ended up calling an like an ex-boyfriend from many years ago. Like, so it was like 15 years ago, she'd been dating this guy named Ron Douglas. And it seemed like less of a boyfriend and more of kind of like a sex and drugs buddy. Yep. So they had used cocaine together and then he had gotten clean. He became a stuntman. And he never did cocaine at all anymore, although he still drank occasionally. Okay. And they had developed a friendship. Maybe it probably, I'm guessing, when she was in her areas of recovery and wanting to get clean and he was somebody who had done it. So she reached out to him and asked him if she could come over. And he actually knew Phil. They had been introduced a number of times. And Phil had always told him, I don't care if you hang out with Bryn. That's great. I trust both of you. Just don't give her any cocaine. And... Make sure she gets home safely at a decent hour. Yeah, look That's out it. for her. Yeah, look out for her. You can hang out with my wife. I don't care that you guys used to bone 15 years ago. Just be responsible with her because she doesn't always have the best control over herself because he's not a jealous guy. And so she goes over there and she wants another drink. So he said he gave her two to three beers throughout the night, but he said she didn't seem drunk at all. And they talked about Phil a little bit. They talked about a screenplay that she was writing. I guess that they like sang some songs at the piano. <laughs> they talked a little bit about spirituality. And then Bryn left at 1245 in the morning and he said, make sure to call me when you get home so I know you got home safe. And she did not call him immediately when she got home. We do not know for sure what happened between one in the morning and 325 in the morning when she eventually did call Ron. So Ron... This is from Ron's perspective. So she has left at 1245. He passed out and he gets woken up at 325 with a phone call. And she seemed altered a little bit, like way drunker than when she had left his house. So she's a little off. She's on the phone. She says that Phil had left, that he's not at the home, that he had left her a note saying he'd gone out and that he loved her. And now she was alone in the house and she didn't want to be alone. So she wanted to come back over. And he's like, well, you're not alone in the house because you have kids. So you can't come over because you cannot leave your two children who are six and nine at this point no. yeah. alone in the house if Phil's not there. So no. And also it's 325 in the morning and this is not a reasonable time to come to anyone's house. And why is Phil not there at 3? 
in the morning. Yeah. Why? So he left before she got home and then he left the kids unattended. All of this was very annoying for Ron Douglas and very like weird. And he was like, drink a glass of milk, take some Advil, get yourself back to sleep, but do not come here. Okay. Well, 20 minutes later, he was woken up again by Bryn at his doorstep, repeatedly ringing the doorbell and like knocking on the door like it's going to come down. Oh, my God. So now he's really irritated. And as soon as he opens the door, he said he got a huge whiff of alcohol. Like it's just coming out of her pores. So she is wasted. And she could tell that he was mad. And she said, don't yell at me. Phil yells at me all of the time. And she came in and she had like a Prada bag with her. And she like sat down and she was trying to talk to him, but she like fell off the furniture and then she almost passed out, but then she got up and threw up and this happened a couple of times. And while this is occurring and he's worrying like, is she going to overdose? Did, what did she take? Did she take something? She says, oh my God, I killed Phil. I don't know why. I don't know why I did it. I killed Phil. And he thinks that she's so out of it that he's like, oh, they must have gotten into a fight. Maybe she hit him or something. So she, he doesn't believe anything that she's saying, that she actually killed her husband. But then later, she's trying to like gather her purse. And a gun falls out of her Prada purse. So he's like, fuck. And she goes, see, I told you, I told you I killed Phil. But he opens it and he opens the barrel and he looks at it. And he was wrong, by the way. But he thought that it had all of its bullets in like the cylinder. So he's like, she absolutely didn't kill him. Like she's like, must be just drunk fantasy land because this has all its bullets. Like, no. And he's like, I'll keep a hold of this. Like, I'm not giving this back to you. But we got to like sober you up and get you home because it's now getting really early in the morning. He doesn't know where Phil really is, like what's going to happen with her kids. So at like 625 in the morning, he was at that point sure that she was probably sober enough. He'd been getting her like a lot of food and some tea and trying to sober her up. And it had been like, I think two and a half, three hours at that point since she had showed up on his doorstep. And so he's like, okay, you're sober enough. You should go home now, if you, especially if you don't know where Phil is because your kids are going to get up. And she was like, I'm only going back there if you come with me. I don't want to be alone. So he followed her in his car back to where they lived, which was like only 15 minutes away from where he lived. And when they get in, she walks in. She locks the door behind them, which was like a deadbolt lock situation. And then they walk down to the master bedroom. And when he gets in there, he sees that Phil is lying on the bed and he is dead. He's been shot. Holy shit. He 100% up until this exact moment did not believe her that she had killed him. Well, yeah. And if he looked at the gun and he thought all the bullets were in there, of course. He was completely shocked. So Phil was lying in bed. He was wearing a t-shirt and like pajama pants, I think, or like a pajama shirt and like boxers. It was definitely bedtime wear. He had been shot three times once through his head, once through his neck, and one bullet had passed through his forearm and into his chest. Later, the medical examiner will say that it seems like Phil was sleeping when he was shot. Their nine-year-old heard his mother from behind their closed bedroom door at some point before, obviously, she went back to Ron Douglas's say, sorry, 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 like scream sorry, sorry. But that was all he heard. So I don't even know if he heard the gunshots. He just heard her saying, sorry, 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 at some point. And the police later theorized that 
the couple had gotten into a fight when she came home late after being at Ron Douglas's. And during this altercation, it seems like Phil had decided I'm going to bed or I'm going to pretend to go to bed, as was his M.O. And she must have just snapped. But they do believe based on his position and based on where he was in bed and how he had not clearly not reacted. There was no defensive moves of like him putting up his hand that he had been completely unaware that he did not see this coming at all. So he was very likely sleeping or pretending to be asleep and he did not see his wife when she came for him. And they also said that it seems like he would have died almost instantaneously. Mike Thomas wrote that Phil actually had a smile on his face. He had a subtle smile on his face when he was found as though he was having a sweet dream. But Ron Douglas was in the middle of a freaking nightmare. No kidding. Could you imagine? No. He said that the realization like happened in slow motion. It was like the whole world just kind of slowed down. Of course. And Bryn was screaming, oh my God, oh my God, he's dead. I told you I did it. I told you I killed him. I killed him. I don't know why I did it. I don't know why I did it. I can't believe he's really dead. Like it was just like, it was like she's sober enough now that she thought she did it, but it was like kind of like hoping like maybe I was just drunk and it was like silly. So now she's screaming. She doesn't know why she killed him. And she starts calling her friends. So she calls like two different friends, one that lives like far away and one that lives like three blocks away. So her friends are now driving over because they don't know what's going on. She's just hysterical. So they're confused. And while she's on what I believe was like a cell phone, he goes out to the hall and he's calling 911 right away. And while he's out in the hall using the landline to call 911, she slams the bedroom door and locks it. So he's getting the police there. He's saying that there's a man who's been shot. He's dead. The shooter's here. But he has her gun. So he's like, I have her gun, I believe. Not the other one. Yeah, he doesn't know if there's other guns in the home. So he can't tell them. So they know they have a potential person that could shoot the cops, potentially. He said she's in there. She's locked. He's like, oh, my God, the kids are here. He can't get out because of the deadbolt that you need a, like a lock from even the inside to get out. So he's trying to find the key to get out of this place. At one point, the nine-year-old wakes up and... I think the nine-year-old later says that actually he came, he could hear him getting up and he came and he's like, we got to get out of here. I got to get you out of here, but I can't find the key. And the nine-year-old knew where the spare key was. Oh my God. And now the police are just covering, they're all around the house because they don't know if Bryn's got a gun. They don't know what's going on here. They, at this point, also know it's Phil Hartman's house. And when they brought Sean out, who's nine, they immediately get him in protective custody and are asking Ron all the questions about what's going on. Two of her friends were there and they're like, what's going on? What happened? Ron's trying to talk to them, but they didn't know each other because they were like yeah, different friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, like different friends from different times in life. And Ron's like, Bryn's still in there. And there's also six-year-old Bergen who's still in there. And I don't even know if she's sleeping or if she's awake. She was sleeping before. So the police have this situation where there could be a woman that's going to come out, guns a-blazing. There's a child in the home. They don't know what's going on. So while this is all going on, Bryn is locked in the bedroom. And at 621 in the morning, Bryn called her sister, Kathy, and she told her that she killed Phil. She also said, tell the children that I love them. At that point, Kathy, who does not live anywhere near them, she lives in the Midwest, was saying, what is happening? Who else is in the house? Is anyone here for you? And Bryn gets off the phone. And so... Once again, well, now the police are in the home and they found poor six-year-old Bergen who was cowering in her bedroom alone. So the police get Bergen out of there. 
Brynn is still in her bedroom with the door locked and the police are now telling her to come out. So she ended up, this is later, but calling her sister again. And she says to her sister, Kathy, take care of my children. And she says, and please let them know how much I love them. And Kathy said that she could hear police officers saying, Bryn, Bryn, open the door. Like people, like she, yeah. there was police officers yelling yeah. in the background. Yeah. And then Bryn hung up the phone. And then Bryn apparently got into bed with Phil's body and she propped herself up against the headboard with a pillow. And like, I, I don't think I have to tell you guys, but trigger warning for suicide here. She then placed the barrel of a Charlton Arms 38 caliber five shooter in her mouth and pulled the trigger. The bullet went through her brain and lodged in the headboard behind her. The police at this point were still not sure if this was going to be a standoff situation. For a long time, they ended up like throwing a brick through the bedroom window and accessing the home that way. And then when they got into the room, they realized they were not going to be dealing with an active shooter. No. So the media circus was immediate. It was right away. The media was on this. It was actually really devastating because a lot of Phil's loved ones and even family members found out from TV and radio news that Phil had been killed in a murder-suicide by his wife before anyone was able to reach out via phone. Yeah. And the children did end up going to be with Kathy, Bryn's sister, which at this point I think was a good idea to get them out of L.A. at this moment. This photo of Phil and Bergen is amazing. Have you seen this? Yeah. Also, did you look at Bergen's Instagram? She's so beautiful. No, I just wanted to Google both of them. I haven't looked at anything. And the first thing that pops up is that photo. And so cute. So the medical examiner would find that Bryn had an alcohol blood level of 0.11 at the time of her death. So that was even after he thought she had sobered up enough to drive, which is obviously over the legal driving limit of 0.08. And she'd also taken cocaine and Zoloft. There was some speculation that the alcohol and drug interactions had contributed to the murder. And Bryn's brother, Greg, even sued the Zoloft manufacturer, Pfizer, because they believed that it might have contributed to her state and this terrible act. Later on, a psychologist said that they believed that it was less the very minor amount of Zoloft and more about alcohol, cocaine, guns, and emotional turmoil being a very bad combination. Yes. I believe the suit was settled out of court, and a psychiatrist on the 2020 episode said that Bryn calling her sister and making arrangements for her children was the actions of a person thinking rationally, meaning that she wasn't in some sort of psychiatric break at that moment. But truly, we will never know what drove Bryn to shoot her husband three times that evening. A lot of those close to Phil were very angry, very justifiably angry about what happened. And with Bryn being deceased herself, there was no one to answer for why it happened or have the closure of seeing somebody prosecuted or convicted or pay their debt to society. There was just no closure. And this is terrible for the children. It's terrible for both families because Obviously, Bryn's loved ones are mourning her as well, but the other side of the family and fans and friends are all angry, kind of angry at Bryn's family too, even though they had nothing to do with what Bryn did. So this was just a terrible moment for everyone. And, and thankfully, the Hartman side of the family, 
Although they were initially very angry and said, no, the kids aren't going to go to Kathy, even though Phil had said that that's who he wanted their guardians to be before his death. He had put it in his will. They were so angry about everything that happened and so angry at Bryn that they were like, no, the kids aren't going there. But then they like actually calmed down and they let these, these feelings of anger pass and they realized that Bryn's family were lovely people. They had done nothing wrong in this scenario and they actually were the best fit to be raising Bergen and Sean and they forgave Bryn. They said there's like, what good does it hold on anger at a woman who's dead? who is also these children's mother. Their mom, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But that takes a big person to do that. It did. And it t- I think it took a little while for them to fully mean it, to fully be able to not just say it, but to feel it. And that's okay. Yeah, exactly. And there was like a lot of people that kind of had some misplaced anger too, because the, you don't know what to do with these feelings of anger and grief. Like John Lovitz. John Lovitz was very emotionally affected by this decision and he was very very fucking angry at Andy Dick and to the point where Andy Dick talks about on the 2020 it was also in the book that Andy Dick was leaving I think with Vicky Lewis the comedy store in LA and John Lovett stopped him and whispered in his ear you killed Phil Hartman and then proceeded to beat the shit out of him in the parking lot oh my god and Andy Dick was like crying because he's like, I, I didn't know. And obviously, like we talked about, he could have and she was going to get it. She got she got it from Andy Dick that one time. She didn't get it from him every single time. He wasn't her dealer. But it just shows that everyone had so many emotions about this and didn't know where to put them. They wanted somebody to blame. There has to be a villain. And when the villain is also dead, there's it feels like where do you where do you put that anger? Or when the villain is literally like a psychotic state. Yes. Or like just like substance abuse in general and mental health issues. I mean, people have lost so many loved ones in Hollywood to substance abuse, too. It just seems like it's the scary, silent killer that just keeps killing all these talented people, especially around that time. Yes, absolutely. And Chris Farley died around a similar time frame. And on Phil's last show, the two of them had done a song to like the um, Avita Zine Goodnight song, like from Sound of Music. It was like a parody of that. And at the end, it was Chris Farley, like sleeping like a little like boy and Phil Hartman singing the last line because it was his last show. So it was his like farewell song. Yeah. And it's like this moment that gives me chills because it was the two of them saying goodbye to the show. And within a year, they were both going to be dead. Everyone said like, you could have kind of have seen it coming with Chris Farley because he had his own issues with substance abuse, but nobody would have ever imagined it was Phil. Phil was the professional grown up in the room who did everything right, who was a father. Well, Lisa did because Lisa knew there were guns in the house. Lisa knew. I think she also still loves him. I think that maybe he was, you know, maybe they were soulmates in some way. You know, she seems so sad when she talks about it on the 2020. It's not out of the ordinary for someone who cares about someone to be concerned if there's guns in the house where there's someone who might be mentally unstable. And violent. And, and violent. He, she was h- hitting yeah. him at the time. She was attacking him. Yeah, she was him. already attacking him. So on September 24th, 1998, just about four months after his death and what would have been Phil's 50th birthday, His friends and family chartered a 64-foot yacht to scatter some of Phil's ashes in the waters of Emerald Bay off of his beloved Catalina Island. Both of Phil and Bryn's children are now grown. They were raised with different last names in the Midwest to protect them, and 
by all accounts, they had a nice upbringing, as nice as it can be after experiencing something like this. But they're both happy, healthy young adults now. Bergen is happily married. She does have a public Instagram, which I saw because she did a tribute to her father and talked about how hard the day of their deaths, both of her parents, is for her repeatedly. But she is stunning, like truly the best, at least looks wise, of both of her parents, for sure. And it seems like Sean is a little bit more private, but his uncle said on the show that they're both creative and Sean is a musician and an artist. And, you know, that creative flair that lived in both of their parents is in, in very successfully. And Phil, obviously, is present in both of them. Simpsons retired Phil's characters permanently and News Radio aired a really emotional and tear-filled episode saying goodbye to Bill, the real deal, McNeil, his character. They basically explained his loss by saying that he had died of a heart attack at some point, but he had written everybody letters. And so oh, the whole cast is crying because the writers got to write like what they would imagine Phil would say to each character as Bill. And it was very emotional. It's now been more than, what, like three decades? Almost, not quite. Two decades since the shocking murder-suicide but Phil still makes millions of people laugh through old YouTube clips and SNL collections through Simpsons episodes and his hilarious cameos in so many movies, like the beginning of So I Married an Axe Murderer when they're at Alcatraz. And he was ad-libbing that whole part and it always cracks me up. So, you know, he was a bright talent gone way too early, but I do love that at least he left work that leaves a legacy of laughter. Absolutely. In conclusion, a PSA, man, no matter how nonviolent you think you are, doesn't matter. Don't mix meds and booze or meds and booze and cocaine or meds and booze and cocaine and guns. Not a great combination. Not a combination that should ever exist. And also, I feel like this is one of those cases where there are just so many red flags Jealousy so being many. a major one, but it's really important to listen to your friends and coworkers and loved ones if they're concerned about you. Like 100%. Listen. Absolutely. That's a really good reminder. And as always, trust your gut when it comes to love so no one ends up murdered. Bye, guys. Bye. Bye. 